Every year, on her birthday, Laura gets a letter from a stranger. That stranger claims to know the whereabouts of her missing friend, Bobby. I love you, Laura. But there's a catch. He'll only tell her what he knows in exchange for something personal. So begins Laura's sordid relationship with her new pen pal, built on a foundation of quid pro quo. Something for something. Her quest for closure will push her to bizarre acts of humiliation and harm. Yet no matter how hard she tries, she cannot escape her correspondence demands. The letters keep coming, and as time passes, they have a profound effect on Laura. For she knows, deep down, that she can't trust a single word, he says. No Sleep Podcast presents Dear Laura by Gemma Amore Chapter 5 Laura was certain her nose was broken, but she didn't go to the doctor. Neither did she call the police. Involving other people only made everything worse, and Laura had learned her lesson. X had been very clear, after all. No police. Her fear of the outside world, where the murky shade of her attacker, her stalker, her burden, lurked in the shadows watching, always watching, held her prisoner. The memory of the photographs X had sent her filled every space in her brain. And the idea that X had been inside her apartment this time, casually walking into her bedroom while she slept, standing over her, close enough to touch, close enough to kill, spurred her into a frenzy of panicked activity. She ignored the internal voice that said, but he didn't kill you, Laura, and pulled every curtain in her apartment shut, stacked every available piece of furniture against every window and door, stripped off all the bedding, pulled all her clothes from her hangers and slammed them into large garbage bags, wondering if he had rummaged through her things, sniffed her shirts, fingered her underwear. She tied each bag up tight, trying to seal away every single last particle of him. She pulled her mattress from the bed and used it to block the bathroom door off, hoping that if X decided to climb in again through the broken bathroom window, the temporary barrier would give her enough time to escape out the apartment's main door. When she was done, she sat on the floor in the very middle of her living room, surrounded by garbage bags and chaos, and wondered what was next for her. Her nose hurt. Her brain hurt. Her very soul hurt. She was in a bad way. She was tired of this, so very, very tired. Her mind ever so slightly rotated then towards something she had never considered a possibility before. But as she looked at the stacked-up furniture, waiting for a knock on the door or the sound of someone scrambling in through her window, she realized that she might not be able to do this for much longer. She was tired and without hope. The idea of not having to cope with X's incessant attention for the rest of her days was suddenly very appealing. After all, Bobby was dead and had been for a long time. There was no mystery left to solve. 
dead is dead. Anything that was left of him now would be bone. Laura thought how easy, how peaceful it must be to be made merely of bone. As she sat there thinking about that, gradually entertaining the idea of her own bones, another letter came. It slid under the apartment door like a snake, making a soft hissing sound as the paper traveled across the floor and poked out beneath the coffee table Laura had dragged over as a blockade. Laura watched it, whimpering. As she read the letter, a cold sheen of sweat collected on her brow. Dear Laura, now you know I'm not fucking lying, don't you? I'm sorry about your face. I think I broke your nose, but I couldn't let you take my photos to the police. Those are part of my personal collection, you see? I am so disappointed in you, Laura. I thought we were building trust. Now it feels like we've gone back a step. I was upset by your letter, Laura. The one you wrote me when you moved out of your parents' house. Did you think I wouldn't follow you? Did you think I would give you up just because you gave me up? That is not how this works, Laura. You don't get to give me up. You don't get to write the letters. I'm the one that has what you want. You don't get to tell me what to do. Only I get to make the rules. I've decided to forgive you for not trusting me. But in exchange for the next clue, and as a way of proving to me how sorry you are, I need something different. Something special. Laura felt the power balance pitch in X's favor once again. He held the keys to her future, her happiness, and her peace of mind. And he knew it, delighted in it, fed off of her helplessness. He was watching her. Any attempt she made to go to the police now could and most probably would end in her death. And a photograph of her own, filled with red. But would that be so bad? Yes, something special, Laura. A tooth. A big tooth. A molar. Give me what I want, and I'll give you a clue. Deep down inside, you know you can't live without me, don't you? And I can't live without you for much longer, Laura. If you don't do as I say, I'm not sure I'll be able to hold myself back. No cheating. I will know if it's not your tooth. Yours, with respect, X. Laura dropped the letter and watched as it glided to the floor. And she realized something as his words stared up at her from near her feet. This was no longer about Bobby. Maybe it never really had been. This was about her and him. This was his obsession coming to a climax. All he had ever wanted to do was own pieces of her and hurt the rest. Bobby was long dead, and she was now the target. If she didn't obey, he would kill her. She remembered the size of him, the weight of his fist. And he knew where she lived. Her mind raced with a thousand different scenarios, all of them ending the same way. With X pinning her down, reaching into her wide open mouth with a chisel or some pliers or maybe even a knife. 
X using a marker pen to draw a thin line around her neck, just above the clavicle. X working on her body with a sharp tool, like an electric saw or a kitchen knife. He had killed Bobby this way. And he would kill her unless she did as she was told. Wouldn't he? Was there really no other way? She could run again. But even if she up and left the apartment today somehow without him noticing, which seemed impossible, she had nowhere to go. She couldn't afford a hotel, and he knew where her parents lived. Her boyfriend would take her in, but she didn't want to put him in any danger, because that's what this was now. A question of danger. A question of life or death. She didn't want to be responsible for any more death, any more grieving. Not when she could protect someone by keeping her secrets safe. There were other options, she knew. She could hitchhike her way across country, go to a women's refuge, take shelter in a church, hide out somewhere in the forest. But it wouldn't matter where she went, ultimately. The pictures of Bobby would follow her around forever. She thought about everything until her brain ached, and then came to a single, devastating conclusion. What was her life worth, really, when she thought about it? What could she measure it by when push came to shove? A full set of teeth? Maybe, after this, he would stop. Maybe, after this, it would be enough. It would be so nice to have a body to give to Bobby's mother. Something she could bury and visit and plant flowers above. And this was the impossibility of Laura's situation. Because X still had something that Laura needed. Bones. It's only a tooth, Laura. It's only a tooth. She went to fetch a hammer and a pair of pliers from the toolbox she kept under her kitchen sink. She downed a cheap bottle of wine. Then she took a hold of her right back molar with the pliers. She pulled, hard. The tooth didn't budge. It's only a tooth, goddammit. How hard can it be? Laura tried again, swollen eyes spilling over with tears of effort and pain. But an innate and instinctive desire to protect her own body from willful mutilation kicked in, and she had to stop. She realized she was not going to be able to pull the tooth out without some extra creativity. Haunted by the image of Bobby, with his arms wrapped around the mystery man she hated and yet needed so much, she searched for and found more alcohol and a small wrap of cannabis that her boyfriend had hidden on top of a kitchen cabinet. She rolled a large, messy joint and fantasized about what she would do when she was free of it all. A house by the sea, perhaps. A dog. Maybe even a child one day. The possibilities were limitless. If she could only break free of this terrible bondage, this terrible pact she had somehow entered into, command and obey, suffer in silence, an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. She picked up the pliers again, and this time, she didn't stop. Laura's boyfriend found her lying on the floor of her kitchenette, blood everywhere, a single broken molar lying in the palm of her hand. What the fuck? He stared speechless as she lay in her own mess, conscious but unmoving. Her nose was swollen and lopsided with two blood-soaked tampons still protruding from her nostrils. Her eyes were two large haunted shadows in her face, 
and her mouth dribbled congealed blood and splinters of tooth. In a panic, he took her to the hospital, where he stayed with her as emergency physicians reset her nose and patched up her mouth. He was angry, confused, and aware suddenly that Laura had secrets beyond his comprehension. Unbeknownst to him, a tall man in a dark blue shirt ambled up and down the parking lot outside the emergency department, pulling a now very old black and white collie dog behind him on a leash. The man did this for hours, walking up and down, up and down, until Laura was discharged. When he stopped, stock still, and watched as she slowly climbed into a car with her boyfriend. Then he left, and the collie dog left with him. Laura broke her relationship off four days later. A parting of ways had been brewing for a while anyway, largely due to her own fear of intimacy. And she realized that she just couldn't bear to let anyone else into the sad, desperate triangle that was Bobby, X, and her. Her boyfriend, now her ex-boyfriend, seemed relieved. She thought he might, after their trip to the hospital. Who would want to date a woman who pulled out her own perfectly healthy teeth? He wished her well, politely, and she did the same. And that was that. She was alone again, apart from X. The tooth she wrapped in cling film and left in a small alcove in the wall near her apartment's front door. One hour later, the tooth was gone, and she allowed herself to tentatively hope for a small respite as X enjoyed the fruits of her labor. And, true to form, she heard nothing more for a while. No clue came, no scrap of paper, no coordinates, nothing. Eventually, she went back to work, as if nothing at all of consequence had happened. Her face bruised, her cheeks swollen, her nose patched up with surgical strips. And nobody much questioned her about it, because she made it pretty obvious she wouldn't tell them anyway. She was mystery wrapped in silence, and sometimes, for those around her, Unwrapping the secret just wasn't worth the struggle. By six in the morning, the forest was fully awake. A much older Laura limped along and breathed deep of the cool, sweet, woodland air. She saw wild horses in the clearing, cropping at a patchy carpet of grass with strong, blunt teeth, tails swishing as they flicked insects away from their sensitive hides. She wished she had time to stop and appreciate the beauty of the moment. But she didn't. She was on a tight schedule. Her proximity to her goal gave her renewed strength, and adrenaline helped her where resolve began to fail. She had come such a long way. Such a long way. And the thought that this could all be over soon was tantalizing. Magnetic. She did pause later, just long enough to apply a fresh wound dressing to her swollen ankle. She winced as she unwrapped the old, blood-soaked bandages and ripped off the old wound pad. The skin around her injury was red, puffy, and putting any sort of pressure on it at all was excruciating. An odd smell also came from her when she first removed the bandages, a smell that made her nose wrinkle and her stomach turn. She recognized the signs of infection, recognized them, and ignored them, swallowing down more painkillers and applying clean, fresh dressings hoping for the best. Laura was always hoping for the best. As she returned her first aid kit to her pack, her hand brushed against the bundle that sat at the bottom of the bag, the heavy item wrapped in a towel that she'd carried all this way. 
She hesitated and wondered if now was the time to unwrap it, tuck it into the waistband of her trousers, as she'd seen people do in the movies. She decided against it. It would get in the way there, be a nuisance as she walked. The gun, therefore, stayed where it was. She felt the weight of it pressing into the small of her back with every step she took. As she walked, she tongued the empty spot on her gum where her back molar had once grown. After the tooth, Laura's world descended into darkness, paranoia, and extreme caution. Her gum turned septic, and despite her best efforts to stay away, eventually she had to take numerous trips via taxi to the dentist. Trips that she couldn't afford, to remove bits of the molar's root that had been left behind by her clumsy extraction, causing the infection. She carried on working, but her habits changed. She switched to day shifts, so that more staff were on site, and even then often called in sick, feeling too afraid to leave the house. When she did manage it, she learned to run, fast, to the bus stop. She took the bus into work, rather than walking, so that she was always surrounded by other people. She never got on the bus if it was empty, preferring to wait for a more crowded one and sat as close to the driver as possible. In between visits to the dentist chair and shifts at the supermarket, she waited for the clues she was owed, but nothing happened. She found this impossible to bear, particularly after the photographs. She tried not to think about what X did with the things she sent him. What had he done with her tooth? Put it on a thong around his neck? Placed it in a trinket box? Slotted it into his own mouth, pretending to be her? Thrown it away? Somehow the last option was the worst of all, because it implied that her sacrifice was unimportant. The pieces of herself she gave had no worth or value, and the only thing that mattered was controlling her. Her anxiety increased steadily until she began to experience crippling physical symptoms, panic attacks, vast, insurmountable waves of dread that crashed into her at the most unexpected of moments and rendered her incoherent, unable to breathe or move or do anything except sit, frozen in paralysis until it passed. She was lucky that her job was not a customer-facing role. When the attacks happened to her during a shift, she was largely unobserved, as she mostly stayed out back while she worked. She simply stood there, packaged food in hand, rigid, hyperventilating, shaking, mouth hanging open uselessly until it passed. At home, she developed a reliance on cannabis to help her manage. She took out a loan, and then another, to finance her habit and her dental work. She also moved. She couldn't stay where she was, knowing that X could walk in at any moment he chose. She knew she was only staying there out of fear, and because she had been conditioned by him to wait for the next clue. And this was keeping her in place, stuck like a fly on gummy flypaper, and she hated it. She hated him. So eventually, she wrenched herself free of the paper and found a new apartment. She planned the operation with military levels of precision so that she left via taxi in the middle of the night. Leaving the majority of her possessions behind, she took only what she could fit into a large canvas duffel, including the bundle of letters and map scraps X had sent her over the years, and relocated under the cover of the dark. She insisted that the taxi driver met her at her door, and escorted her right up to the next. Her new place was a top-floor apartment, where the windows were too high to climb into and had safety bars bolted on the outside for good measure. She made sure that her new door had a peephole in it, too, 
and that there was no gap underneath it through which a letter or note could be pushed. But even though her new place felt safer, by degrees, than the last, she still lived in fear. Because X was smart and persistent, and she didn't really think she could escape him that easily. He would find her eventually. She was sure of it. But for now, she could at least sleep on a mattress again, instead of using it to block her bedroom door shut each night. And so Laura struggled on with her miserable, anxious routine and grew thin, diminished, consumed by her neuroses. Then, somehow, her birthday arrived. Another one. Another day she simultaneously feared and hated for so many reasons. It came and passed uneventfully. And not only was there no letter, but she had little in the way of anything, as her mother had been taken ill and wasn't able to post her a card. Laura woke, another year older, and sifted through the mail on her doormat with a racing heart. She found only bills, junk mail, and a flyer from the bar around the corner advertising happy hour. Was she being punished still, she wondered, for trying to go to the cops? Or was X just torturing her, because that was how he operated? Or had she done it? Had she really done it this time? Had she slipped the net? She stared at the door for hours, waiting. She pressed her eye to the peephole, looking for the distorted fish-lens version of him in the hallway. But it remained empty. And no letter came. Not that day, or the next, or the next. Time went by, during which it began to dawn on Laura that maybe, just maybe, something might have happened to X. There had been silences before, but this was different. They had unfinished business. He owed her a clue in exchange for the tooth, and so far he'd always paid his dues. He had a strange and warped code of honor, and not fulfilling it was very against his character. Laura began to tentatively speculate as to what had happened to her pen pal. He'd moved away, or was in prison, or even, and this hurt her more than she could bring herself to understand, maybe even he had died. Imagine that. Imagine if X were dead. She couldn't. She simply couldn't countenance it. Because on the one hand, she would be free of him. But on the other, she never would. Not as long as she remembered that photo of Bobby, the one painted in red. X's silence dragged on, and the nature of it almost broke her. Almost. Laura spiraled into a hole of work and weed, work and weed, and fretful, broken sleep. She began to lose grip on all sense of what was real and what wasn't. Bobby came to her in dreams, his hair long and matted with blood, and his face was always a blank, featureless smudge that shimmered and jittered the longer she looked at it. She found that her memories were being eaten away one by one, and it was only through old photographs and notes that they had written to each other at school that she could recall much about him at all. Such childish notes they were, too, riddled with scribbles and doodles and superlatives. Notes about stupid things like television shows and music and who was on which sports team. Notes which held no hint of the things to come for either of them. They made her sad and furious at the same time. She longed for a time when her mood and her health were not governed by the words scrawled onto a piece of paper, childish or otherwise. Eventually, Laura's workplace forced her to take some time off. They were reluctant to let her go because she was a good worker when she actually showed up, 
and as a family business, they valued loyalty. But the owners found themselves unable to deal with her increasingly bizarre and unpredictable behavior. With so much time on her hands, Laura cocooned herself in a duvet in her bedroom and crashed further down into despair, getting high and sleeping for days on end, then using a manic surge of anxious energy to revisit each and every location from the letters that she had coordinates for, ritually, one by one, first in her mind, and then by way of taxi. But when she got there, to each of these points on a scrap of map, she found that the passage of time had not changed anything about her predicament at all. Bobby was still not there. Bobby was not anywhere. Bobby was dead. His body in pieces. Once again, she thought about burning the letters. Once again, she thought about going to the cops. She did neither. Instead, she longed for release. One day bled into the next, and the next, and so on, with no word from X, until she looked in the mirror one day and saw a single gray hair. Years had passed. Five more. She was still living in the same tiny studio apartment, and she still had the same job. The store had taken her back after a few weeks off. And she still had no new letters. Instead of being happy about it, she was wretched, held captive by something so complicated she didn't know how to give it a name. But then one day, whilst hoisting a pack of rice up onto a high rack at the store, she met Frank, and everything changed. Frank was unlike anyone Laura had ever met before. The first thing that struck her about him was how much he resembled Bobby, or how much she thought he resembled Bobby, given her patchy memory. He was tall, unusually so, and had blonde, straight hair that fell in a curtain across his face. When she first saw him, she nearly fell off the stepladder she was perched on top of. When she first saw him, she thought that Bobby had come back for her, after all this time. For a fleeting moment, she held on to the hope, and then she remembered the photo. Bobby was dead. This was somebody else. Frank drew closer. He smiled up at her, and Laura could see that it wasn't Bobby, but the resemblance was strong enough to trigger a massive response. He asked her a question. Are you okay? Laura saw his mouth moving, but couldn't hear the words he was saying. A cold rush of adrenaline had rocketed through her veins, and she fought desperately against a new panic attack. Fought and lost. Her nostrils flared, the blood pounded in her ears, and her mouth dropped open as she fought for breath. Frank did something very unexpected then. He stood on tiptoes, reached up and took the bag of rice from her hands, and dropped it on the floor. It split, rice spurting out everywhere, but he ignored it. Instead, he joined her on the stepladder, resting his leg on a lower rung so that she stood higher than him, but they were still close enough to touch. He reached out and placed a hand carefully on her shoulder. She reared back, almost toppling from the ladder, and he removed his hand. Then slowly, as if approaching a wounded animal, tried again. This time, without knowing why, perhaps more out of surprise than anything else, she let him touch her. If you can... Try to breathe out more than you breathe in. It'll help. I can show you if you'd like. Laura couldn't reply. She just stared at him, her eyes wide. Who was this person? What was he talking about? Could it be possible? Did he understand somehow what was happening to her? 
Frank didn't wait for confirmation. Instead, he took a great, deep breath and blew it out gently through his cheeks, a long exhale, longer than the inhale. He repeated the movement and then did it a third time. And Laura realized distantly that he was counting in his head. He breathed out for double the amount of time he breathed in. He was counting it silently, just for her, so that she could learn. In, one, two, three. Out, one, two, three, four, five, and six. In, one, two, three. It was almost like dancing, except the only music was her distress. Gradually, her own chest began to rise and fall in sync with his. They kept eye contact throughout the entire exchange. Frank's was steady and kind. Hers was frightened, yet compelled. Laura had read somewhere once, in one of those magazines friends used to buy her, in that brief period when she'd had friends, that it took only a few minutes of steady eye contact to fall in love. Steady eye contact and steady breathing and one bag of spilled rice. They stayed like that for a long time, and all thoughts of Bobby and X vanished from her mind in that small, blissful window where Frank took control of her life and her mind and cared for her. He explained it to her later, when they were naked in his bed. She was too afraid to take him to her place, but Frank had a car, and she figured that if X was still watching her, he would find it more difficult to track her in a stranger's vehicle, moving at speed. So she took a risk, the first one she'd taken in years. And the risk felt, at least, like it was worth it. It's to do with the oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in your body. Frank stroked the soft skin around Laura's nipples. They hardened in response. When you freak out and have a panic attack, start hyperventilating. You breathe too much. Take too much oxygen in. You need carbon dioxide in your brain, too. Laura said nothing. Just lay in the crook of his arm, letting his fingers move down, tracing the line from navel to groin, and marveling at how unafraid she felt lying next to him. You're probably wondering how I know all this, aren't you? Laura didn't take the bait. She didn't want to know at that moment. All she wanted to do was to lie there and enjoy something, for once. He seemed to understand this and stopped talking, his fingers working inside of her. Laura, mesmerized by the sensation, felt like she were slowly waking up from a terrible nightmare, which is exactly what she was doing. Later, she found out that Frank had been in a car accident as a child, a serious one. He'd struggled with anxiety ever since. Laura took this information and thought about swapping it for her own story. The story of Bobby and the letters and X and the codes and her missing back molar. But she didn't. Even years later when they married, she didn't. Even when, red-faced and roaring, she pushed out her beautiful baby boy and called him Robert and marveled at his thick crop of white blonde hair. Still, she said nothing. Laura kept her secrets, and time flew past like a leaf tumbling across a great fall. And her family took root, 
flourished, blossomed. And she learned to smile again. Smile and laugh and sing and dance. And still, no letters came. As she thrived, conversely, others did not, as if the scales of life found themselves unbalanced and compensated accordingly. Mr. and Mrs. Evelie divorced, grew older, and developed health problems, and eventually Bobby's mother died, having never found out what happened to her boy. The newspapers loved the tragedy inherent in her not knowing, and circling around her more insistently as she deteriorated, pestered her for interviews. She gave one eventually to a local paper about six months before she passed. It was the usual fare, a harrowing plea for information that felt, because it was, like a drowning woman gasping for air. The worst thing is not knowing what happened to Bobby. It's the not knowing that destroys your life, eats at you. If only I could just... If only I could just... know... Laura, the keeper of secrets, wondered how true this actually was. She suspected that knowledge would be just as dreadful for Bobby's parents to cope with as the lack of closure. She suspected that not knowing had saved them some considerable distress. Who was to say? Mrs. Evelie had dwelt in anger for such a long time. It was unlikely any news in either direction would have repaired her lost equilibrium. Her picture haunted Laura for a whole day, as it stared out of the folded newspaper on the breakfast table. Mrs. Evelie's eyes, rendered dark and flat by the poor print quality of the paper, followed her around the room and, it felt, beyond. Why didn't you do more? They said accusingly. Why didn't you tell us what you knew, Laura? Laura didn't go to Tara Evelie's funeral, not out of anger or spite, but out of a desire not to upset the family any more than they already had been. Seeing Laura might remind the Evelies of just how much they had lost. The chance to watch him wed, the chance to hold a grandchild, and the memories of Bobby's service still clung to her, even after all this time. Candles and prayers, and meaningless, insincere words floating up into the vaulted ceiling spaces. And Tara Evelie's eyes, staring her out of the church. Laura kept her secrets. Time passed over her, and she folded all the parts of herself that related to Bobby and X and the letters into a neat, compact package and mentally filed it away. She finally allowed herself, as she approached middle age, to admit that X was gone. He had finished with her. Maybe the tooth had been enough after all. Maybe he had found a new obsession. Maybe he had died. This thought no longer scared her like it used to. She was a parent now, and X was a threat to her family, a threat she couldn't afford. She had her own path, her own responsibilities, her own Bobby. She had purpose and identity. X belonged in the past, along with her youth. And then, when she was 44, on the morning of her birthday, it happened. She got another envelope. Laura, it said on the front of a dingy yellow packet. The word was written in a familiar hand, shakier, but instantly recognizable. The world fell away from her. Or was it she who was falling, endlessly through a dark space, the ground continually threatening to surge up from beneath and smash her to pieces, only it never seemed to get there somehow. She just kept falling. 
Inside the envelope were two things. A letter with a string of coordinates. This was par for the course for X. And a piece of fabric, which was not. The fabric was worn and furry, the color bleached. But Laura knew instantly what it was. It was a piece of fabric that had been cut from a dark green woolen sweater. The same type of sweater Bobby had been wearing on the day he climbed into the van. It was spattered with a dark, rusty brown substance that she knew without question was blood. Bobby's blood. Laura saw this and still could not cry. Instead, she just kept falling. Dear Laura was written and adapted for audio by Gemma Amore. Produced for the No Sleep Podcast by Phil Mykolski. Musical score composed by Brandon Boone. Starring Kristen DiMercurio as the narrator. Mary Murphy as Laura. Mick Wingert as Frank. Dan Zapula as Laura's boyfriend. Aaron Lillis as Mrs. Evelyn and David Cummings as X. Join us next week for the final chapter of Dear Laura. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyright for Dear Laura is held by Gemma Amor. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.